So hello and welcome to Philosophical Tools for Spiritual Life by Arate House. My name is Toby Mendelssohn and after traversing through the terrain of firstly epistemology, then logic and more recently metaphysics, today we finally enter into the terrain of ethics. Or at least we dip our toes into that terrain. And I mean this sort of in the classical sense of the term core questions in ancient ethics. How should we live? How can we be happy? How can we flourish? These kinds of questions. Now, it should be pretty obvious for those of you who have persevered through the preceding episodes, this kind of classical sense of ethics has really been strongly underpinning everything else. I mean, I know that you're not listening because you're planning to go off and do a PhD in epistemology. So when we've discussed epistemology, it really was in the context of ethical or spiritual practice. So you might say ethics has been here with us all the way, but now we're going more directly into it. I also left you with something of a confusing nutshell in the previous episode. Is it something of an unholy combination of causation and constraint and emptiness and freedom? And I did promise to untangle that in this episode, so I'm certainly going to try and live up to this promise, but it may take us a little more than just one episode to really unpack it. Let me just uh, rehash the problem for you, for those of you who haven't listened or perhaps have swiftly forgotten. The central claim last episode really is that cause and effect strongly determine and therefore strongly constrain us in our everyday lives. And we tend to respond to that by kind of flirting with it. That is, we know not to touch hot stoves, but we don't really go all the way into it and understand it properly. So we don't marry and have children with it. That is, we deploy many tricks of escapism to get us away from the hard fact that causation is really riding us, that we are its horse and that so many aspects of our lives are really unfree and unpleasant in lieu of this reality. So that's the basic claim. And while that is contestable, I mean, everything in philosophy is more or less contestable, it's not particularly controversial. The stronger claim, which probably is more contestable, is the fact that there is a way out, a way to master these unceasing tides of causation to collapse the distinction between the rider and the horse so that both are really working together in something of a dance with reality. And, you know, that really is quite a claim. And I'm going to be kind of doubling down on this claim in this episode and also the next few. And the intent here is to really provide you with some very practical, ethical, spiritual tools for beginning how to learn 
to do this dance, to dance with causation. So, um, let us jump in. I suppose the first point here is to recognise that there are really many different kinds of causation that we have to deal with in our everyday life. Many different forms of cause and effect. We talked about rocks and Honda Civics and Donald Trump. Um, I'd say, you know, rocks and Honda Civics are not really so much of a causal problem for us. Many think that Trump is more of a problem. Some don't. Uh, but I think we can all agree that politics per se has very determining causal effects on our lives through its connection to lawmaking, economics and other such things. I think we can all agree that at the moment viruses are rather a big causal problem. And I think that leads us to see uh, more deeply that, that our bodies per se are definitely a big causal problem. I mean, I would like to fly like an eagle, or at least ride the Tour de France uh, like a professional cyclist, but causation ensures that these possibilities will never happen outside of my dreams. And on a less kind of dreamlike level, I think the point is that most of us are managing various kinds of chronic niggles and chinks and pains and displeasures. Having a body is a site of causal constraint. And we can actually rack up quite a big list of all the causes and effects which determine us, which press down upon us, which draw us into a kind of life that we never seemingly choose to live. You know, maybe that's really the inside of middle age and its related midlife crises. You know, this discovery that you're kind of just living amidst an endless array of causes and effects, all of which demand your attention. And at some point, you have this sense that all you're doing is just relating to this causal necessity. And therefore, this sense of being reactive rather than proactive, which can really begin to grate on some people. It's sort of intimately connected to a feeling of an intense lack of freedom uh, and related emotions, maybe like joy and happiness and these sorts of things. And maybe we can juxtapose this with late teenage or early adult years, where some, but not all, have far fewer causal responsibilities pressing down upon them. So there's something very juicy in this, namely that the choices we make as young adults end up leading to situations of causal constraint in later adulthood. And I think this highlights something really important about the nature of causation itself, which is exactly as I said last episode, namely, it happens whether you agree with it or not, whether you see it or not, whether you care about it or not, effects will follow from the causes that you generate. So in other words, one may not particularly see that the constraining effects one experiences as a mature adult are in fact, at least in part, produced or caused by all the seemingly free actions one undertook as a young adult. So this should lead us to ask the question, were they actually so free in the first instance? So I think this problem is kind of becoming very clear for us now, but there's still the question of how do we deal with it? 
what can we do practically? What kind of tools do we need? What kind of agency do we have? How can we respond constructively to this kind of problem? Well, the very, very first thing we need to be able to do is to see. To see this problem with some degree of clarity and precision. We have to really know that we're in this situation of deep constraint, of unceasing causation continually determining us in this way and that way. Because if you can't see what the form of constraint is, then there's absolutely no hope or possibility of gaining freedom from it. So the very first step is we must find a way to gain that sight. And this implies to simply see very clearly and nakedly and without excessive embellishment the exact nature of all the causes and effects which are directly ensnaring us. And this is going to be quite different for everyone. That is, we all have quite different sets of causal relations which are very, very particular to our own context alongside some of which we may share. So there's shared causal context such as a causation connected to economy, environment and other such things. But much of it is very, very particular. So we really can't generalise too much here. I can't tell you what your causal context is. You have to look and see for yourself. You have to see your own causal matrix. And I think at least initially, this is kind of a straightforward, pragmatic, down-to-earth kind of task. You have to examine the entire assemblage of causes and conditions which make your existence what it is. The causal chains of relationships, of partners, family, friends, children, colleagues, neighbours, etc, etc, etc. The causal chains of economics, wages and assets and debts and needs, desires, your productive labour and skills, vocational aspirations, all that kind of stuff. The causal chains of your embodiment, your particular health problems and maybe their solutions, diet, exercise, ageing, all that kind of stuff. The causal chains of culture and society, you know, the media you engage with, the shows you watch, the values you ascribe to, the food you eat, the music you listen to, the cultural mores of your workplace or town or school or church or football team, you know, you get the idea. The point here is if you see a rock on a walk, as we've talked about in previous episodes, there isn't really a great kind of causal connection between you and the rock. So you can just step over it and keep walking. But all of this other stuff, bodies, social relations, economics, that's actually going to be there in every step you take. So even if you're alone in the woods experiencing the beauty of nature, all of this causal stuff is still with you still shaping you, it's determining you. It's causally constituting you to be who you are and what range of possibilities you have. 
and most of it is really very constraining, which is why we attempt various forms of escape, you know, the walk itself possibly being such an example. So this actually leads us to a very, very key point, which I've only briefly touched on. Uh, and, you know, if we ask the question now, who am I? What is a self? Uh, where can I find who I am? Those sorts of, you know, abstract questions. The answer must entail all of those sets of causal relations. So just as there's no rock or Honda Civic independent of its causal relations, so too is there no you independent of your causal relations. So in a very important sense, you are your own particular causal context. So I'm thinking a bit about that funny old maxim that people used to say, uh, maybe they still do, in order to get you to eat. Well, you are what you eat. And I think, you know, we need to widen that and say, actually, you are your own particular causal context. It doesn't sound as neat, um, but it's truer. And actually, we don't need fancy assertions like that. This is a point where we need to leave theory, because this stuff isn't actually that theoretical. It's very practical. If you examine this very precisely and clearly from your own side, you can very easily establish its truth or efficacy. And this kind of examination is the first real practical step, which is to say we need to examine. We need to see with clarity and precision our own causal matrix. That's really the first ethical move. Um, I suppose it, uh, it begs a question, how do we actually undertake such an examination? Well, the key here is that you have to be able to distinguish the actual causes and effects from merely imputed or fabricated ones. And for this you need sufficient clarity and precision and logic and reason. So one needs to discern that difference. What is that difference really? Well, a merely imputed or fabricated causal relation has no real causal efficacy in reality. It's simply the mind inferring a causal relation when none is actually operative. So placebos in medical trials is a really good example. Um, maybe we could think about a court case as well. Of course, a lot of the time court cases don't play out fairly, but sometimes they do. And if it does play out justly, one will see two contrasting narratives about a given set of events. And one of those narratives will have causal efficacy, i.e. A caused B, which caused C, then this happened, then that happened, then this happened, and this happened. Whereas the other one will be merely imagined, and very possibly imagined as an intentional lie for the sake of money or maybe avoiding punishment or something of that nature. So stretching this point a little further and anchoring it in our own lives, I think the point is we often imagine or impute or fabricate causal relations in our own lives where there's none. And this is in part what leads to faulty reasoning, faulty knowledge and all kinds of problems which follow from that. 
So we're very much involved in a knowledge kind of problem here. Accurate knowledge is a key. That's what we're aiming for. And that's really what I mean by clearly seeing the causation of your own life. And I'll give you an example from my own life. So when I was younger, I was fairly crappy, but earnest singer-songwriter. And I used to find an incredible variance with my vocal abilities. So, you know, sometimes I could sound pretty good, nothing amazing, but, you know, a rich baritone, which was interesting enough to work with on a track. But at other times, I could sound like a possum getting mauled to death by a fox. Like, truly horrible. And I just couldn't work out why there was such a variance. So I thought for a long time it was kind of a confidence thing. Um, you know, the days where I sounded like a possum getting mauled to death, you know, I was low on confidence. The days where I was sounding good was when I had good confidence. Or maybe some kind of mystical notion that musos often talk about, this idea of finding your own voice. Somehow or other, on the good days I'd found it and on the bad days I'd lost it. I really, really looked hard and far for an answer to this problem. And I tried ridiculous amount of different things. And I tried them all because I did not have clear seeing of the causal relationship between good voice and possum getting mauled voice. And then eventually I kind of realized, I suppose I began to see, that it was a very kind of physical kind of problem and seemingly correlated with asthma, which I'd always had, and that there were specific triggers or causes for the flare-ups of that. So eventually I actually went off to an allergist and I got tested and it turned out I was in fact very allergic to various things. And this is precisely why there was so much variance in my singing. If I tried to sing after an exposure to a particular allergen, the effect would be that my throat would literally close up and go numb and my lungs would become inflamed for quite a long time, even a few weeks. And in this time, my voice would sound horribly ragged, sometimes quite breathless. But then it would clear and the rich baritone would appear again. So actually it was really a very physical issue, one that modern medicine could at least diagnose. It could demonstrate the causes and effects, at least to some degree. So with that knowledge, I could examine with more and more precision this kind of possum getting mauled problem. And although I've never been able to fix it completely, that causal knowledge has helped me to do basic things like avoid exposure to allergens where possible, and also to understand what can and can't be done musically, you know, which amounts basically to don't bother trying to sing after you've been exposed to allergens. But in the same breath, you know, you know it's going to clear up in a few weeks, so don't worry about it too much either. You know, so seeing the causation was so, so helpful for resolving that particular problem. But the key here for us is to distinguish between fabricating causation and seeing causation clearly. Inferring causes and effects where none actually exists. Or discovering how genuine causes produce very real and tangible effects. Because if there is confusion or uncertainty there, 
the action you undertake will also be confused or uncertain, and that's going to lead to bad outcomes. So the thing that does all the work here is really an analytical mind, an analytical mind which is intent on discerning the fabricated or merely imputed from the genuine and functional causes and effects. So it really is kind of a scientific approach, or at least it has a resemblance. So we could think here about something very close to all of our minds at present, our good friend Mr COVID-19. Think back to when you first heard about it. You know, distantly reading articles uh, about Wuhan in China. And think about what followed after that. For a month or two, there was kind of a real scramble for knowledge. Not only you and me reading the paper, but also the experts. No one really knew much about it. So epidemiologists had to do this scramble for knowledge as well. And think about the process that we all went through for gaining that knowledge. It was a process of discerning genuine causation from merely imputed or fabricated notions of causation. So we had to find, we had to answer the causal questions of what is this virus, what does it do, how does it spread, what are the symptoms, how can you prevent infection, all that kind of stuff. And it's all emerged through this process of trying to understand with clarity the causes and effects. So the clearer we have become about cause and effect, the clearer our knowledge is and the better place we are in to act in relation to the presence of Mr COVID. So, you know, maybe this is a good time also to bring to mind those two approaches to causation that I mentioned last episode, namely fatalism and idealism. The fatalist says, well, we're all buggered. There isn't much we can do. C'est la vie, the apocalypse is now upon us. I'm going to my bunker with gun and cans of baked beans. Whereas the idealist says, COVID isn't real. I don't believe in it. I don't need to change my behavior. I don't need a mask. Uh, I'm just going to keep on going like before. And, you know, we've seen both of those approaches rather a lot. And the middle way that I was sort of presenting last episode is to acknowledge the way that COVID-19 is really strongly determining us in many different ways, but also that when you examine the causation more carefully, the situation becomes far more malleable and open-ended. So you're acting within the constraints of causation rather than in opposition to them or in denial of them. But to really get into that, um, we're going to need a few more episodes, so stay tuned for those. Today we need to remain at first base, this issue, this basic issue of clear seeing or clear knowing. Gaining an answer to that question, what causes and effects are really shaping me and which ones am I merely fabricating or imputing or making up or inferring without any basis in reality? So it seems that we need some, if not all, of the epistemic tools that I went through at the beginning of the series, especially including understanding some basic logical, logical fallacies such as confirmation bias. Now... Although the approach here is really quite analytical and, as I mentioned, it kind of mirrors or even utilises forms of reasoning and knowing quite common to science, there's definitely something more to it than that. Because we're not in the sphere of 
epidemiology, you know, some objective study of some particular external phenomena like a coronavirus. We're in the spheres of our own unfolding lives. And this extra dimension is quite interior and subjective and personal. So the machinations of causation that we are subject to require that the analytical attention be directed very, very precisely in this kind of interior subjective way. So it's definitely a little bit therapeutic uh, and psychological and phenomenological. And it's at this point precisely where meditation probably becomes quite important. Because to enter into that more imminent and subjective sphere, you really need some reliable kind of mechanism for analytical reflection. You know, so somehow or other we've gone eight episodes in this series without really even mentioning meditation. But you know, this is definitely the time. It's good to bring to mind here because I think one of the great misnomers about meditation is that it is principally about calm, tranquility, concentration and relaxation. You know, the great panacea to the anxiety epidemic that has really been the real global pandemic of the 21st century. As probably many of you know, there's now a very large mindfulness industry and GPs prescribe meditation now for, as an effective antidote to many problems, both physical and psychological. And I'm not knocking this because, you know, there's evidence that shows that it works. But I think seeing meditation in this light is kind of like cooking a beautiful meal, but not eating it. You know, the point of getting your hands dirty in the kitchen is to rustle up something to satisfy palate and belly. So if you just cook and then throw the feast in the bin, it's, you know, it's missing the point. So this is exactly the same with meditation. Yes, the techniques are definitely there to tame, subdue, concentrate and calm the mind. And yes, most of the time our minds are very unruly and sometimes very panicky and anxious and overexcited or depressed. So, you know, shamatha or tranquility meditation in the Buddhist tradition is definitely 100% about addressing those sorts of issues. But that is just the preparation and cooking in the kitchen. The real point of calming and taming the mind is to engineer a little more precision and clarity so that you are then in a position to reflect and see and analyse with real potency and lucidity. If you try to analyse or reflect on any given issue when your mind is very busy and active or excited and looking for objects of pleasure and enjoyment, you just won't be able to do it. It's like trying to read a difficult book on a crowded train. You just can't really do it properly. So, remember what we're trying to do here. We are trying to see, with sufficient precision and clarity, all the webs of causation that shape us, that determine us, that constitute our lives to be what they are. And in order to accomplish that task properly, we must be able to discern actual causes and effects from merely imputed or fabricated ones. So without that clear seeing, we will definitely remain the horse and causation will ride us wherever it wishes. So to dance with causation, to 
shorten and potentially even disarm the distance between horse and rider, you must first see very clearly the machinations of causation as they occur in your life. And that is the real meditation. That's the eating of the feast, uh, called vipassana or inside analytical meditation in the Buddhistic tradition. So this is your mind aimed at this exact thing. It zeroes in on the machinations of causation that constitute you, that shape you, that determine you, that make you who you are. If you don't turn your mind to that causal matrix, you will never gain sufficient clarity about why you are the way you are. And you'll never develop the agency to be able to respond constructively to the manifold of causes and conditions that shape and constitute your range of possibilities. You will remain, at best, a racehorse. At worst, a pack mule, merely responding to the dictates of the master of causation, your rider. So, we've gone one step. The first step to mastering causation, and it's plainly an epistemic one. It's a clear seeing. You have to see clearly, you have to do the work yourself to know directly all the causes and effects which shape you. Next episode, we'll move to second base. Uh, So stay tuned for that. Until then, thank you for listening. Stay safe. And keep in touch at aratehouse.com.au.